could turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 16, which is in your bulletin. Starting at the beginning of Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, and I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. It is my privilege to attempt to bring some clarity to our text this morning. After hearing it read, if you had to summarize the focus of this passage in a single word, what would it be? If you said murder or anything like that, then you're in good company. And by that I mean that's what I've always thought too. Um, But I've come to realize that this text is not primarily a story about fratricide or killing a brother, particular crime of Cain. The text is obviously less interested in sharing the gory details of what happened than it is in showing us exactly why it happened. And the longer I've spent with this text the more I've come to see it as a beautiful picture of the gospel and of God's patience and grace towards sinners, wrapped up in a sober warning. So as we work through our passage, it's my hope that we will both answer the question, 
How has humanity descended so far from the perfect, harmonious picture of paradise that was laid out for us in Genesis 1 and 2? But also, I hope that we'll come to clearly see that murder is just one possible expression of a heart left unchecked. And that when sin is harbored, it will replicate and mutate like a malignant cancer into ever less recognizable motivations until one day we wake up and think, how did I end up here? You see, sin is a bigger problem than we realize. And if you have a bulletin on the back, there's an outline. You'll see that that's the first point we're going to talk about this morning. So sin is a bigger problem than we realize. It's clear that humanity either completely underestimates sin or we don't understand what sin really is at all or how it functions in our lives. And this has been true as long as there have been sinful humans on the earth. But let's take a look at our own culture. Those with the influence to shape our culture's collective conscience seem to share and propagate a sense of unbridled optimism in humanity's inevitable progress towards some sort of utopian ideal. And to illustrate this, I want to read a synopsis from um, a New York Times bestselling book that was released earlier this year. Uh, um, and the, the excerpt reads as follows. Is the world really falling apart? Is the ideal of progress obsolete? In this elegant assessment of the human condition in the third millennium, cognitive scientist and public intellectual Steven Pinker urges us to step back from the gory headlines and prophecies of doom which play to our psychological biases and instead follow the data. In 75 jaw-dropping graphs, Pinker shows that life, health, prosperity, safety, peace, knowledge, and happiness are all on the rise, not just in the West, but worldwide. And part of me really wants to believe that. And it's worth noting that there's nothing wrong with the desire for these things. In fact, I would suggest that because we are designed for wholeness and perfection and peace, that the desire for these very good things is actually hardwired right into us. So why then are Pinker's findings so jaw-dropping? Is it not because these claims simply do not jive with our lived experience? Even if we take his advice and stop watching the news, just talking to our neighbors and our relatives and our coworkers, does it really seem to you that humanity is becoming more happy? What do we do with skyrocketing suicide rates? The CDC released a report earlier this summer and they stated that the suicide rate in the United States had risen 30% in just 17 years. What do we do with the proliferation of addictions and mental illness? What do we do with the increasing number of marriages and families falling apart? How do we understand the growing disregard for the sanctity of life in our culture as evidenced in the discourse surrounding topics like abortion and euthanasia? What do we do with the loneliness epidemic as it has been coined? Does any of this sound like the kind of progress 
that we want to be celebrating. No amount of evidence-based reasoning can explain away the pain and the brokenness that we live with every day. We may very well have made incredible advancements in technology, in our ability to generate wealth and prosperity, in the accrual and dissemination of knowledge, but all of that is small comfort to the victims of violence, greed, and growing social disparity that is left in the wake of those very advancements. The metrics by which man measures his progress fail to take into account the moral bankruptcy of the human heart and our uncanny ability to take good things and use them to do unspeakable harm to one another. We fail to take sin seriously. And this is no less true today than it was when Cain and Abel walked the earth. And so let's get into the text and see how it plays out there. Verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Period. So why all the fuss over Cain's birth and nothing about Abel? Sure, Cain was the first baby ever born, and that's obviously significant, but any mother here who has had more than one child, I think, could speak to the reality that giving birth to children is not something that loses its luster after the first go-round. Right? It's deeply significant every time. And so Eve clearly attributed some special meaning to Cain's birth that she did not to his brother Abel's. And last week, Paul pointed out that Adam named his wife Eve in Genesis 3.20 because she was the mother of all the living, and that this was an act of faith in God's uh, willingness to follow through on his promises to fix everything. So Eve's birth pronouncement then is likely pointing us back to the words of God in Genesis 3.15, where he curses the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Eve, having just produced her offspring, was likely attributing messianic significance to this child. He was going to be the one to fix everything. Adam and Eve were going to be reunited with God in paradise, and their deepest longings of their soul would be satisfied again. Tragically, that is not what happens. Instead of reversing the curse, this perfect, innocent, giggling, drooling little baby boy produced from within himself a level of evil that had never been seen on the earth before that day. No one had modeled murder for Cain. He didn't have a serpent whispering in his ear. Cain conjured up his crime all on his own, without external influence. Can you imagine the horror of his parents? Where did this come from? See, what Adam and Eve had underestimated was the depth to which sin had contaminated them. Sin had become so inextricably woven into the fabric of their being that it was transferred to their offspring as though it were their very genetic material. And not just the effects of their sin, 
and not just the guilt for their sin, but the very inability not to sin. In Psalm 51, verse 5, King David, a man whom God himself described as being after his heart, describes this reality in his own life, saying, Surely I was sinful at birth. But not only that, he says, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. See, sin is a much bigger problem than we realize. And the second thing I want to address from this text this morning is the process by which sin hijacks our hearts. And Cain will serve as our model. We jump back into the text at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of, of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And so we have a couple of questions to answer here. What is this offering that they're bringing, and why are they bringing it? To this point in scripture, no offering has been prescribed. But the Hebrew word used here, uh, rendered as offering, is often used to describe a customary tribute in the ancient Near East that would have been brought from an inferior to a superior as an acknowledgement of one's dependence on the other's favor and kindness. And so Adam and Eve began this practice of bringing such an offering to God as an act of worship that both confessed their complete and utter dependence on the Lord's provision for their survival, as well as acknowledged the gifts of grace that they had already received. Okay, so let's jump back into the text at verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So now we have the million-dollar question. Why does God favor Abel and not Cain? An incredible amount of ink has been spilt through the centuries trying to answer this question. And there's a really interesting discussion to be had here that we do not have time for. <laughs> um, and so for now, just rest assured that, we, uh, that if we read the text closely enough, we have everything we need right here. And so firstly, we see from verse 2, their offerings are the natural product of their respective occupations, right? Abel is a shepherd and Cain a farmer. Therefore, Abel brings a sacrifice of an animal or animals. Cain brings of the fruit of the ground, likely some type of grain. In verse 4, we read that Abel brought the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. But we don't read any such qualification of Cain's offering. And this is starting to move us towards clarity, but it's not enough on its own because it would only be an argument from silence at this point. But thankfully, the text gives us even more. And we're going to notice two things. We're going to notice Cain's reaction to God's rejection of his offering, and we're going to notice God's warning in response to Cain's rejection of his offering. And I'm actually going to address them in reverse order for the sake of flow. And so we'll jump ahead to verse 7. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted, God says to Cain. And the implication here is that Cain had not, in fact, done well. So we know that something about his offering or the way in which he brought it 
wasn't pleasing to God. And this also removes any suspicion that God is acting arbitrarily in his choosing between the two brothers. Right? Because God is, God is explicitly placing the responsibility squarely on Cain's shoulders. And now we need to take a pause here at this moment to clarify that this is in reference to the motives of Cain's heart. This is not works righteousness. God is not saying, if you had just tried harder, I would accept you. God is not judging Cain on external realities the way we do. He's judging the content of Cain's heart. And so we look again to King David, again in Psalm 51, this time in verse 17 where he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God is telling Cain that if he repents, he will be accepted, just like Abel. But Cain isn't having it. And his personal reaction is the bigger tell here. So Cain was very angry, this verse 5. Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Cain's anger provides for us a window into his heart. Cain is clearly angry because he was using his offering as a means to put God in his debt, thereby securing his blessing for his future. There isn't a shred of humility or awareness of his dependence on God in Cain's heart here. He is utterly consumed by pride. God desires the hearts of his people, not their stuff. He doesn't separate the worship from the heart of the worshiper. And this offering was meant to be an outward expression of an inward attitude and a right orientation toward God. So, do you ever catch yourself doing stuff for God out of what must look like a vague, superstitious belief rather than a heart that knows it is loved and wants to live for Jesus? Or is that just me? Around the time my wife and I got engaged, um, I began to look around our church at the time, and um, I saw all these men who seemed to have it all together. You know, they all seemed, for the most part, to live comfortable and prosperous lives. And having grown tired of, of my own youthful irreverence, and having realized that lack of responsibility isn't all that it's cracked up to be, um, I began to want this kind of life for myself. The problem was, I focused all of my attention on outward expressions of religiosity. You know, going to church twice on Sunday wearing nice shoes or a tie, giving a little bit of money to the church every now and then. Sorry. But all of this serves to illustrate how foolishly arbitrary we can become when our focus is on the externals instead of on Christ and the renewal of our hearts. But I was a fool with the best of them, and I white-knuckled my way towards what I thought was God's blessing for years. But what I've realized in the aftermath of it is that the more I focused on trying to look like someone who loved Jesus, the less I actually loved Jesus. 
and I became increasingly angry and bitter at God that things weren't working out the way I'd hoped. And the angrier I got at God that my life and my relationships were not, were failing, the more I destroyed my own life and relationships. Do you see how insane that is? In the end, it almost cost me my marriage. But by God's grace, that was a major wake-up call in my life. And that's in large part why I'm standing here this morning. Now, maybe you can't relate to that story. Maybe you're not um, as big a sinner as I. Thank the Lord. Uh, Maybe you've never lost your temper in the loud, obvious sense. You've never hauled off and punched someone in the face. Maybe you think the very idea of that is ridiculous. But what about that ice-cold, slow-burn, passive-aggressive anger that just feels so justified? Have you ever held a grudge or been really judgy and hypercritical of others, even if you didn't share that with anyone? Look, there are plenty of ways to fall into this trap, but the point is this. Most times we don't give any thought to these self-righteous feelings when they arise in us because, frankly, they feel so natural. But God has a stern warning for us all. We jump back into the text at verse 7. In the second half. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. As Paul mentioned last week, God does something very interesting here in personifying evil. He's giving Cain and us spiritual vision that we desperately need Because in these seemingly garden variety moments of frustration, irritation, jealousy, lust, and pride, we do not realize just how precarious our situation really is. My son Kalen and I like to watch a show called 72 Dangerous Animals. Um, And they had an episode on jaguars that had started to populate the perimeter of some cities in India due to habitat loss. And these Giant cats are coming into the cities at night and hunting domestic animals. And now these city-dwelling creatures are not accustomed to having to worry about predators, and so they're completely oblivious to their surroundings. Meanwhile, these jaguars, they uh, find a garbage can or a fire hydrant or telephone pole or something to just get behind a little bit, and they crouch their entire body flat to the ground in an attempt to make themselves look as small and disarming as possible. And by the time the dog or the goat or whatever it is realizes what's happening, it's already too late and it's being dragged out of the city by the throat. And this is exactly how sin operates in our lives. It creeps in under the cover of darkness when we're most distracted by other things and it hides in plain sight. We almost don't realize it's there until it's too late. But God warns Cain and us, be vigilant. Don't be naive. Be aware of your surroundings. Know your enemy. And the second part of verse 7 makes it clear that we have what we need to fend off sin. We are capable 
of thwarting its efforts to destroy us with the power of the Holy Spirit and God's own words. This blows up all of our excuses. We are not mere helpless victims of our sin. We are responsible, moral agents who act in accordance with the desires of our own hearts. Listen to what James says, this chapter 114. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is a process it starts small. Cain didn't just get up one morning and kill his brother out of the blue. He had been harboring sinful desires, and these bad seeds had germinated and taken root in his heart. And when they had been allowed to mature enough, they bore their poisonous fruit in the form of murder. God's rejection of Cain's offering was not the cause of Cain's sin. It was just the occasion that created the conditions to reveal what had been festering in his heart all along. Now, of course, murder is an extreme response. And I'm not too worried that anyone here is going to kill anyone else during coffee after the service. But listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5.21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. My friends... If you are harboring anger or disrespect or jealousy against anyone else, no matter how justified you feel in it, if you are entertaining and holding on to lustful fantasies in your mind because you've convinced yourself that it's not hurting anyone, if you are refusing to commit yourself to your church family or an engaged group because you only want to give of your time and your heart when it is convenient for you, if you are allowing yourself to be identified by your fear and your worries and your suffering and your struggles in life, rather than taking them to God who cares to see what he might be trying to accomplish in you through them, these things may seem small, but sin is crouching at your door and it wants to destroy you. The third and final point I want to draw from the text is that sin has a cost that cannot go unpaid. Look at Cain's, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God personifies the blood of Abel, and it stands to accuse Cain and demand the due penalty of death be paid in full. And remember that the original audience of Israel had just been rescued from Egypt when, as Exodus 2 explains, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. 
See, throughout the Old Testament, we see that without exception, whenever God hears the cries of his oppressed children, their oppressors incur his wrath. Because God is holy and just, which by their very definitions mean that he cannot allow injustice to go unanswered for. Cain deserved death, but God was gracious yet again. And so Cain is merely cursed. And as we read in verse 11, the Cain, the farmer, is cursed from the ground. Because he had sowed death in the earth, the earth would no longer give up its life to him. And in those days, agriculture was one of the only occupations that kept um, people settled in one place. So by proxy, he was cursed to be a wanderer who foraged and scraped and killed for his food. And so we look at Cain's reaction to this curse in verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground, that's true, and from your face I shall be hidden. I do not remember God saying that in the curse. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain is throwing the ultimate toddler temper tantrum here. He is essentially saying to God, if you do not give me what I want, then I do not want anything to do with you. But you had better not let anything bad happen to me. Cain is filled with self-pity at the thought of bearing the consequences of his own actions. Cain's concern is not for having been cut off from his family or for having been cut off from the presence of God, but his only concern is for his own physical well-being. Hear what Jesus has to say about that. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. To choose to be more afraid of human enemies than remaining an enemy of Almighty God is evidence of a radically seared conscience. And so God gives Cain his protection, even as Cain is professing his outright rejection of God himself. And this is haunting. Cain chose his sin, and that sin produced death, real death. He banished himself from the presence of God for eternity. The blood of Abel cried out for justice, and Cain said, bring it on. My friends, God gives us the same fair warning that he gave Cain. How will you respond? If there are little glimpses of sin crouching in your soul, don't ignore it. Drag it into the light. Confess it to God. Share it with a trusted friend or your engaged group or myself or Paul when he gets back. Ask for prayer. Do not allow it to grow roots in your heart. Do not nurture it in the darkness. Do not listen to the lies of the devil when he tempts you to believe that you're not worth it so you should just give up. Rather, listen to these words from Hebrews 12. But you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the blood of Abel cries out for justice. And we too stand before a holy and just God, deserving nothing more than the death that we have sown in our own sinful hearts. But God, in his unfathomable love for us, offers us more grace than we can imagine. He chooses not to give us what we rightfully deserve, and because of this, there is an imbalance of justice that needs to be paid for by someone. And this is the better word that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks. While the blood of Abel cries out for justice, the blood of Jesus beseeches God on our behalf for forgiveness. And God happily grants it. Because in an act of unimaginable self-sacrifice, Jesus allowed himself to become filled with all the sin, all the shame, all the filth, all the death and decay that we have hidden in our own hearts. He takes it to the grave and destroys it on our behalf. The victory has already been won for us. And the price, the cost of sin has been paid in full. Friends, what excuse do you have left? Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, you are so much more holy than we can even begin to imagine. And we are so much more plagued and beset by our sin than we can comprehend. And yet you have chosen not to deal with us as we deserve, but rather to lavish more and more grace on us. And because we could never make it back to you through our own efforts or our offerings, you made a way for us to be restored to your presence through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we thank you and we love you. Amen.